Would you join me and uh, let's let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we as we open up the scriptures and hear what the Lord has for us. Father in heaven, uh, we do ask that you'd prepare our hearts. Oftentimes in the scripture, the the prayer, the desire is, oh, oh Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us, and we so desire that today. We pray that the word, your word, would find its mark in our hearts and uh, in our lives, Lord, that it would find its way in like a good seed and bear much fruit in our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In an article entitled, Music Keeps U.S. Troops in Formation, Boosts Morale, Lenore Atkins wrote about the importance and usefulness of music in the military. Am I doing something funny, Carlos, with this mic? No? Okay. She wrote about this importance of music, usefulness in the military life. So, you know, it's always for centuries been a part of the military. If you can think back, you've seen pictures of the Revolutionary War, and there's a drum and fife in there that would go along with the soldiers. But, but more relevant and more current, you, you might think of this cadence call that soldiers will do when they're marching. When they have a long march, they'll sing. They have a song that they sing that, that keeps them in step, and you'll, you'll often see this. So when soldiers have a long march, there's, there's several things that can obstruct them and challenge them. They might become weak and tired. They might become bored, experience fatigue. They might be distracted. They might be fearful or filled with anxiety about what they are marching into. And so there's an important tool that is used to help these soldiers, and it's to sing, to sing a song, a cadence, a short, easy, learnable song sung all together. So tough, trained, courageous, brave, committed group of soldiers are told, you need to sing. You need to sing a song. And when they, when they sing together, they all of a sudden become more focused, less distracted. They keep in step because they're singing in time. Their breathing is actually more controlled as they sing. So now their oxygen levels in their bodies is, is more tempered and leveled off. So they actually find more physical strength when they sing. They're physically stronger, and because they're singing together, they're strengthening the camaraderie between them. And maybe the sergeant is calling out, and it's a call and a response, and it's enforcing, oh, we're in this together, and we're under the authority of the sergeant. And so it, it builds the morale, and it builds the commitment to one another. For many similar reasons, singing together is one of the most important things that we do as a church, as the people of God. We gather together and we spend 20, 25 minutes standing and singing together. I don't know if you thought about it in these terms, but you probably know it intuitively that you can tell a lot about the spiritual health of a church by how they sing. We know this as pastors, and so in the weekly evaluation when we talk about the service, 
if by chance we're here and we say, you could really hear the people singing, that's a highlight. Because we know that's a sign of spiritual health in the life of the church. It doesn't have to be good singing. It has to be singing out loud together. I was talking with my sister recently and my father, our dad, passed away a few years ago. And since then, she visited a small church and she was sitting in the pews and behind her was a gentleman that, that just belted out the songs, the hymns as they were singing. And she was really touched because she remembers my dad. I inherited from my dad the inability to sing any note on pitch at the right time, so he could not hit a note to save his life. But he, but he only sung at one level, really loud, double forte. That's how he sang everything. And so there was no right pitch, but there was lots of loud singing. And she was in that church, and there was a gentleman behind her singing like that, and she was touched, and she was moved with the memory of, of my dad. And there's something about singing that is good. I can personally recall several Sunday meetings coming together as a church where the singing together became such a powerful move of God in my life. And, and the times that I'm thinking of are times that we were really walking through some very dark and very low times as a church, maybe for me personally. I can think when my wife, Tammy, was in the hospital for a couple weeks and we were wondering How's this going to turn out? Is she going to make it? What's going to happen? And coming into a Sunday meeting and the worship and the singing lifted my soul. And it was just, it was a powerful moment. I think of shortly after Dan Shubin, who just, we announced, passed away just recently. But when he first had his car accident and suffered a severe head injury, and we were all wondering as a church, how's this going to turn out? How's he going to be? What's life going to be like? And coming together and have times of worship, and sometimes in the most desperate times, we gather together, and God's people begin to sing, and it's powerful. In some of the darkest times, singing was often the tool and the proof that God was keeping us, keeping us holding on to us through difficult times. We faced troubles, we faced hardships, but when God's people would gather and begin to sing and the room would fill with praise and voices of God's people, on pitch, off pitch, mattered less. The room was filled with the voices of God's people and it was proof, it was evidence that God, in spite of it all, was keeping us. Our series is Songs of Confidence, and our text is a song about God's help. This psalm, this song, this poem was meant to be a tool to help God's people find strength in the long journey, like the soldiers on a long march. Time to sing this song. And in singing the song, we invigorate and refresh our souls and find new strength. And we we deepen our, our bond and our commitment to one another by singing this song. It's a song meant to be sung or read out loud in order to accomplish what it was meant to do, refresh and revive our hearts. This is what it's all about. We look to the Lord for help because he will keep us. 
through our journey. We look to the Lord for help because he will keep us through our journey. I want to ask us to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to ask us to read the psalm together out loud. So over the next 30, 40 minutes, I plan to unpack the psalm, talk about it, explain it so that we, by God's grace, will all better understand it. But the real power, really half the power of this psalm is in the vocalizing of it. Songs are meant to be sung. There's a reason why we don't gather and just say, okay, now I'm just going to read you the lyrics to the song that we would normally sing. It would have no real effect, not the same effect by any means. And it's not that the lyrics are meaningless by any means, but the point is when we vocalize it, when we sing it. And the Psalms are meant to function in the same way. The real power, the real intention of the song is found as we vocalize it. So I'd like to read it, if you could just kind of follow my lead, and I invite you to say it out loud, to just vocalize it. And that will in turn prove to be helpful to your soul. Psalm 121 should be on the screen for you. So follow along with me and read out loud. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Wonderful. I want to break it down into just three simple points. Whose help do we need? Secondly, what do we need help with? And thirdly, why trust the Lord for this help? Whose help do we need? Here's the setting of the psalm. We're on a journey. We're set on a path. This is the second in a series of psalms known as the Songs of Ascent. They're like traveling songs. It was set out so that we would sing these songs or that Israel would sing these songs on their journey to Jerusalem to go to the festival. Now, the Songs of Ascent started with Psalm 120. And in Psalm 120, it's a bit of a, a, an odd kind of uh, psalm because it, it, it ends strangely. It's the first one that talks about the experience of coming face to face with the harsh realities of what's wrong with this world, how bad this world is, and the person writing is expressing their resolve. I'm done. I'm done with this place. In a sense, I'm kind of I'm fed up with this world. I've had to come face to face with the cruel realities of what's wrong with this world. Woe to me that I live in Meshach. Woe to us who live in Southern California. We've seen it. We've seen the realities. We've seen the harsh realities. We've seen the badness. And that Psalm 120 is just the inner workings of a heart coming to the resolve and saying, this cannot be my home. I can't stay here. 
I can't, I can't call this my eternal place. This isn't my fixed place. I have to move on from here. And so it's the resolve of the singer saying, I'm leaving this world and I'm going to make a journey to the city of God. Psalm 121 picks up right there. So first, the decision and the, the determination to say, this world cannot be my home. And I need to find God. I need to find the place where God is. I need to go to the place where God is. I, I want to live in the city of God. And so the journey begins. Eugene Peterson writes us about this transition. He says, we know that Israel in saying that this no did not miraculously return to Eden and live in primitive innocence or mystically inhabit a heavenly city or live in supernatural ecstasy. They worked and played, suffered and sinned in the world as everyone else did and as Christians still do, but they were now going someplace. They were going to God. The truth of God explained their lives. The grace of God fulfilled their lives. The forgiveness of God renewed their lives. The love of God blessed their lives. The journey has begun. Everything is different. Everything is new. We know who we are. We've decided to leave this world behind. We decided to pursue God. We know who we are. We know where we're going. And off we go. And we get into Psalm 121, and the realization hits. The journey is hard. The journey is long. Psalm 121 is the eye-opening realization that we need help for the journey. The existence of this psalm proves what it doesn't say explicitly. We're not there yet. This is helpful to know. We're not home yet. This will help you. This helps me. We're not home yet. We're on a journey. We know where we're going. But presently, on this journey, we need help. We've been chosen. We have chosen. We are leaving something behind. We're going to a destination. We know who we are. We know where we're going. Now it all makes sense. Our lives make sense. Who we are makes sense. Our identity makes sense. We have the right purpose, but we're not there yet. We've simply begun the journey. And while we've been changed, while you've been changed, while I've been changed, the world we live in has not. And in order to get from here to there, we're going to need some help. Help. Assistance. Someone who can supply what we need. Someone who can carry some of the load or even us if necessary. Because we have an enemy who is stronger than we are. But we have a friend who's stronger than our enemy. We have a long and dangerous journey to go on, and so we need a helper who knows the way and who can assist us along the way. So the writer begins. I look to the hills. Where's my help come from? Now, this is an interesting thing. It's a funny thing with poems and with songs that don't always extrapolate and explain the meaning of everything. And so it, 
tends to leave a lot of room. How, how are we going to understand this? It's a song. It's a, it's a poem. So it's not this, this didactic teaching that lays out all the points and subpoints. So we have to try and understand to the best that we're able what is being said here. Negatively, well, actually, positively, the mountains could be a place of beauty, magnificence. I mean, I love looking at the mountains. I look to the mountains, and I'm glad I live in Pasadena. I have that experience often and have for the last, well, how many ever years we've been here. They're, they're beautiful. They're magnificent. They, and in this context, there's some truth to the fact that they actually point the way to Jerusalem. They have to go over the mountains, and the mountains surround Jerusalem, so they go through the mountains in order to get to the city of God. But also, mountains negatively present dangers, obstacles. The mountains, the San Gabriel Mountains, are beautiful to look at, but if I said, okay, now we've got to go hike to the other side of the mountains, now all of a sudden they become a problem. Now we have to think through, oh, how are we going to get through and over these mountains? These pilgrims needed to pass through in order to get to Jerusalem. Difficult terrain, long, tedious pathways, wild animals, robbers, thieves, all kinds of troubles in the mountains. But also in the scriptures, looking to the mountains, the high places, often are reference to where all the pagan sacrifices and gods are up on the mountains. That's where the, the, the false religions would be set up on top of the mountains. And you could look up on the horizon, look to the tops of the mountains. And when you, you would see all the altars to the false gods. All the options for help. All the options, the promises for help in this life. If you're going to say, this is my home, this is my world, I'm here, this is all I have, you begin to start looking for any and all kinds of help to make this life today right for you. And it's possible that's a reference to, oh, I look to the mountains. And is that where my help comes from? All these offers of various gods, the fertility gods, the sun god, all the different ones promising, oh, if you worship at this altar, this is what will assure a good life for you today. If the translators got it right, posing this as a rhetorical question, then looking to the hills for help is looking to the wrong place. Then what's being said here is, I look to the hills and I ask, where, do my help, where does my help come from? Not there. My help comes from the Lord. That's the pilgrim's answer. My help comes from the Lord, not the hills. I don't look here. I don't look there. I don't look to the false gods. I don't look to the short-term promises for a good life now. I'm looking to the Lord. Jeremiah 3.23, truly the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains Truly the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. There the prophet lays out the contradiction. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Who made heaven and earth? This is a credibility statement. This is like I'm going to one-up all the gods on the mountains. This is the one who created the very mountains that you're looking at. The ante is up. Where do I look to for help? I look to the one who created 
all things. Ultimately, our help comes from the creator, not the creation. And so we should sing this song. Gather together, seeing the trouble all around us, reminding ourselves and one another to boost our morale, to reinvigorate our hearts and to muster up renewed strength with the fact that the Lord, the creator of all things, he's the one who is our help. He's the place to look to for help. The psalm goes on to answer the question, so what is it that we need help with? Why do we need his help? He will help us when we stumble. He will not let your foot be moved. He's talking about losing your footing as you're climbing, as you're on the pathway, as you're on the journey, that your foot would slip. When traveling by foot, there's constant dangers of losing your footing. Rough terrain was hazardous. Slipping, falling, twisting your ankle. There was always the danger of some injury when you have to walk so far. Now, losing your footing is, is a way of speaking about your whole body. It's about saying your, your, your whole body is either lost or gained depending on your footing. I think if you play almost any kind of sport, you, you realize this. Like, if your feet are in right position, if you have your stance, then the rest of your body can do anything and everything that it's called to do. But if you lose your footing, if your feet are not right, then everything is off kilter. And nothing can work. You can't swing. You can't catch. You can't do whatever it is you're called to do if you don't have your footing. And so by talking about the footing, it's talking about your ability to do anything and everything that you're called to do. If you lose your footing, you lose your ability to do what you're supposed to be doing. Traveling your journey. Making your way forward. How does God help us when we stumble? Bible often talks about stumbling as when we stumble into sin. James says we all stumble in many ways. It means we stumble into sin. We, we lose our way. We, we commit some sin. We omit doing something we were called to do. We do something that we were called not to do. We all stumble in many ways. And James goes on to talk about how we all stumble in how we speak and the use of our tongue. And we can certainly just talk about that. And we've got dozens of times per day of stumbling. We are warned in the scriptures not to view ourselves as never sinning. In 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But here is the help we are given by God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So how does God help us when we stumble? Oh, he provides the remedy each and every time we stumble. Oh, you have an advocate with the Father. You simply come and confess your sins once to another. And as you do that, he's faithful and just because the sins were paid for on the cross at Calvary. 
So the payment will not fall on your account. So we confess and we receive that forgiveness. And so we find help when we lose our footing. The psalmist goes on to say, and the sun shall not strike you by day. The journey involves long periods of time exposed to the hot sun. And saying God is going to be your shade. He's going to help you so that you don't suffer sunstroke. Too much exposure. Not enough water. Your body temperature gets too high and your body begins to react. And you have headaches and nausea and dizziness and increased heart rate. Eventually disorientation. Too much exposure is more than we're able to handle. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Right hand speaking of all that you set out to do. Just using a term, using a phrase. What, what we do, we do, we use our right hand to do what we're called to do. And God says, as you're on your journey and doing what you're called to do, and when you get weary because of overexposure, because the trial is too long and the difficulty, and there's just too many consecutive hours stuck out in the hot sun, the Lord is the one who provides the shade for you to cool down, for you to be able to hydrate and enable you and equip you to do what you're called to do. Some of the most challenging trials are the long ones. The ones that seem to never end, that go on longer than you anticipate. Sometimes we, have, we feel a sense of grace for a crisis and for a problem, but it's a whole different thing when the thing drags on, when the health issue, it, it's not being sick for a few days or a couple weeks, it's chronic and it's, and it's ongoing. The relational strife or the difficulty is not a short-term, easily resolved conflict, and it goes on for a long period of time. The long trials are the difficult ones. I'd like to read you a little story back in Genesis chapter 21. God is calling Abraham, telling Abraham, promising Abraham a son. But prior to this, Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, has a son with Abraham called Ishmael. But then all of a sudden Isaac is born. And there's a conflict with Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and Sarah. And Sarah says, Abraham, send that woman and her son away. Troubled Abraham, but God spoke to him. Don't worry, it's okay. Do as she says. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. And he sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, 
For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. I will never forget the moment in my Hebrew class trying to learn Hebrew and reading through that passage and that simple phrase, and the Lord heard the boy cry. It's just one of those moments when you read something in a different language and all of a sudden the simple reality of it just strikes you as so profound. This boy was about to die of sunstroke. They were dying in the wilderness, near death, very near death, to the point mom knew he's going to die. I can't even be near him. I can't watch him go through his final moments of life. And at that moment, God hears. God heard. Heard the cry. Came in. Provided the water. God was his shade. Protecting him from the sun. I want you to know, friends, even near-death encounters, problems that leave no real sense of hope, situations that leave you convinced there's nothing good in my future, God is a help even in those situations. Those are the kinds of situations that this song is singing about. This is the song that we're called to sing together. Those are the kinds of situations that God is able to be a help in and for. Third trouble. The sun by day and the moon by night. Moonstroke? Is that what's going on? Meaning what? What? Is this, is this just a poetic way of parallelism? Uh, sun by day, moon by night? Maybe. Making the point that God's help is with you day or night? Yes, surely that's true. It may refer to the freezing cold desert nights and the dangers that come during the night in the desert for the pilgrim traveling. But it also may refer to an old term, moonstruck. The Latin word for moon is luna, where we get the word lunatic from, and so we use the phrase moonstruck as when you lose your mind. You lose your sanity. You get off your game. Your, your, your thought life gets twisted and, and confused. A large amount of the difficulty of our journey as pilgrims takes place in our minds and in our thinking and how do we think and when we lose sight of the truth that we lose our way becoming a pilgrim involves living today living this life for a future place while living in this place the new home operates under an entirely new set of values and rules there has been a major shift in our thinking and in our perception back in Psalm 120 when we decided to leave this world behind and become one of God's 
pilgrims. A major shift in what we believe to be true, creating a kind of battle in our thinking along the journey. The long, hard journey, worry, fear, anxieties, doubts that can lead to unbelief often can leave us confused about whether or not are we really on the right path at all. We see the corruption, but we're not actually seeing the promised destination. In the middle of the night, in the long, sleepless nights, sleep-deprived, causing us to doubt, wonder, am I just a little bit crazy? Have you ever asked yourself that? I have. <laughs> Maybe too many times I told my wife, I, I love the phrase from Charles Spurgeon when he says, aren't we just a little all off the balance? I'll take that, Mr. Spurgeon, to help me in those moments when I wonder, am I really going a little bit crazy here? It's the Lord that helps us in the middle of the night. It's the Lord that helps us when we wonder and we're confused, when we're disturbed in our minds. And Jesus shows this wonderful power of God. In Luke chapter 8, verse 35, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he finds the most mentally disturbed case you can imagine. The man who could not be chained, naked among the tombs, scaring everybody off. No one dared even come near him. He was so wild, so crazy, so dangerous. And Jesus comes to him. And Jesus sets him free. And with this wonderful, simple statement, Luke writes, And they found the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I think it's one of the most profound displays of the power of God. Beautiful picture. That even, even in mental illness, even in times of confusion, even in times of self-doubt, it's the Lord that's our helper. That the Lord is able to help even in situations like that. So 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Third point, why trust the Lord for help? Because the Lord is our keeper. Key word in this psalm, he will keep us. He is our keeper. To keep means to cause a state or a condition to remain. Be secured. Meaning if he keeps you, your state and your condition will remain. Your status with God, who you are in Christ. No matter the trouble, if he's your keeper, that means your condition will be unchanged. Your status will be 
unmoved. I'm going to read you another passage in Isaiah 27. In Isaiah 27, God is presented as the keeper of the vineyard. But here it's a little bit different. Maybe you remember Isaiah chapter 5. He's the keeper of the vineyard, and he's done everything to make this beautiful vineyard, but the vine is not fruitful. The vineyard are the people of God. And God is saying, I've made this beautiful vineyard. I've dug it, put a wall around it, did all the right things, and yet I have this vineyard, and you are not bearing good fruit. Now in Isaiah chapter 27, he's still the keeper of the vineyard, but now it's a different story. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Oh, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Here he's saying, I'm the keeper of the vineyard. You are the vineyard, and I water you every day. I guard over you. I watch you. I keep you. I tend you. Oh, I wish there were some briars and weeds trying to get into my vineyard because I would do battle with them for you because I'm the keeper of this vineyard, and I keep it well. Let's clarify what kind of help we're talking about here because oftentimes the promises of God in the Scripture read like a trouble-free life, like nothing bad will ever happen to you. You read these straight-up promises, and it sounds like it's saying simply that, but it's simply not the case. All of Scripture tells us that's really not what he means and not what we're talking about. The promises of God are much more like we would think of an insurance policy. Your insurance company that you pay to protect you is not making any foolish promise to say you'll never have an accident, you'll never have any need for this insurance. They're simply saying, when you have trouble, we'll be there for you. When you encounter trouble, you don't have to worry about the trouble because we're here to support you and carry you through that. That's precisely what the promises of God are doing for us. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And listen to this. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. That's the kind of help we're talking about. God is not saying, look, if, if you really trusted me, if you really held on to the promise, nothing bad would happen in your life. No, what God is saying is as soon as something bad does happen in your life, I want you to know that I am there with you and I'm for you. And I want you to know that I'm keeping you because there is no problem that can come into your life that would cause your status and your position with me to change. I'm keeping you as my son. I'm keeping you as my daughter. Regardless of the hardship and the trouble, regardless of the sunstroke and the moonstroke and the whatever and the slipping of your foot, 
whatever ends up happening, I want you to know I am your keeper. I am holding on to you. I am with you through it, and I am with you in it. So to have God as your helper is not some guarantee of no trouble, but a promise that no trouble can separate you from him and from his love for you. Nothing can dilute his grace in your life. Nothing can divert his love from you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, in all these troubles, in all these hardships, when you stumble and lose your footing, when you're faint-hearted and too long exposed in the sun, when you feel like you're losing your mind and wondering and confused, through all these things, I will keep you. Then we have this wonderful phrase in the song, he never sleeps, never goes to bed, never takes a nap, never so much as dozes off for a few minutes in the middle of conversation. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is a way of telling us that God always cares and that God is never inattentive to you, to your need, to your situation. Trouble in the life of the pilgrim always comes with a kind of temptation first reaction gut reaction doesn't god care doesn't god know doesn't he see doesn't he know how i feel how could he why would he first reaction which is why we sing this song which is why we march and step and chant this song because it's not true that he doesn't care. He said, oh no, I never not care. I'm always caring and I'm always attentive. I want you to know I'm not taking a nap. I didn't look the other way. I wasn't busy with people in China and in Africa and forgot about you. Jesus makes this Wonderful statement as well. You remember when he was in the boat asleep and the storm hit. He's lying in the bottom of the boat, fast asleep, and the storm is getting worse and worse and worse. And there it comes. Here comes the temptation. Oh, Lord, you must hate us. Surely you can't love us. What in the world are you thinking? Why are you sleeping? Don't you know we're about to die? Hagar, Ishmael. Don't you know he's about to die? Jesus, can't you see the water's coming in? We can't keep up. We're about to drown and you're asleep. And he wakes up. Why? Why afraid? Why afraid? I took on this humanity that needs sleep, that needs food. Did you think that changed anything? about my ability to watch over you and keep you 24-7? Not at all. And he calms 
the wind and the waves. Oh, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? The Lord is your keeper. Worship team, you can come on up. Psalm 121 is a song to be sung meant to boost the morale and strengthen every pilgrim who's getting tired on the journey. The psalm is meant to be spoken out loud so that it can revive and refresh our hearts when we stumble, when we get weary, faint-hearted, when we lose our way and wonder, are we on the right path, when we become confused and begin to doubt the things that God has promised, the things that God has told us about who he is. This is the song that is meant to get us back in step with the people of God and encourage our hearts about the place that together we're heading to. Friends, I wonder if we could take some time and if it would be helpful for us to pray for you. I, I wonder as I lay out these three categories of ways that God helps us or why God helps us in, in these ways. And I, I can't help wonder and I just want to ask the question if you're, if you're here and you would say, I've stumbled and I'm struggling to grasp the Lord's help. I've stumbled. Some sin got a hold of me. Something caught me. I got sucked in, drawn in. I stumbled. I lost, I lost my footing. But I lost my footing and I'm having a hard time grasping the help of God in my stumbling. And maybe you're here and you would say, I'm, I'm suffering from sunstroke been exposed a little too long for what was too hot and too difficult and I'm faint-hearted and I'm weary and I'm struggling to grasp the Lord's help in my faint-heartedness. I wonder if you're a little moonstruck this afternoon and you say, I've lost sight of God's reality. I'm, I'm struggling with what is true I'm losing my way. I'm not sure. I'm wondering if I'm a little crazy. Or I'm wondering if I would believe what this guy is telling me this afternoon, if then I would be a little crazy. I'm having a hard time grasping the Lord's help. Are you? Is anybody in the room there? Could we pray for you? You would need to lift your hand right now and let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. And we would just ask some people to come. Why don't we all stand? I want to leave some room for God to meet you. I don't want you to just come and listen to a sermon. I want God to meet you. I want you to experience God's grace. And sometimes that comes just through a simple action on your part to say, 
I need the Lord's help. That can be a huge step to take. Is there anyone here? I've stumbled, struggling to find God's help. I'm faint-hearted, struggling to find God's help. Losing sight of reality and what is true, and I'm struggling to find God's help. If you lift your hand, some people around you would just gather around, and we would just take some time and just ask for the Lord to meet you. Okay. A hand is up. A couple hands are up. Folks, a few hands, both sides of the room. Friends, just, just go. Just go and pray with them. Don't need a long counseling session there. Don't need a lot of conversation. Just need the Lord. Ask the Lord to come, to help, to bless.